Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Rachel Stewart. I'm a PhD researcher at the University of Kent. I'm here today with Dr. Nikki Lane, who's going to talk to us about her book. And this is the latest in our series of sex, sexualities and sex work. So Nikki, can you tell us who you are, uh, where you are and what your area of expertise is, please? Sure. I'm Dr. Nikki Lane. I um, I have a PhD in anthropology with a concentration in race, gender, and social justice from American University in Washington, D.C. I lived in Washington, D.C. for a little over a decade, and I am now in Atlanta, Georgia, where I'm from, and I'm an assistant professor of Black Queer Studies in the Comparative Women's Studies Program at Spelman College. I uh, I like to describe myself as an interdisciplinary scholar trained as a cultural and linguistic anthropologist. But to be honest, I tend to I tend to do a little bit of everything. And in some ways that can be very difficult, but in other ways it is really exciting and it can be really dynamic and it can create opportunities to do work across uh, across a broad spectrum of topics. I really uh, tend to view my primary areas of research as Black queer theory, Black feminist theory, American popular culture, and issues within the African diaspora. How that tends to culminate is in my interest in the way that Black queer people in the United States use pop culture, how they create pop culture, and what that popular culture has to say about issues of race, gender, and social justice, um, and how, you know, we often see cultural workers doing Black queer theory and doing Black feminist theory in real life. So that's ten, that tends to be how I like to think about my work. I have uh, published um, the, my current book, my, the current book manuscript that I'm working on um, it deals with the ways that Black lesbians in the United States have uh, found one another. So I'm tentatively calling the book How to Find a Black Lesbian, because I really am interested in the way that people go on searches for and find and locate Black lesbians in um, really over the past uh, century or so. So I'm really excited about that, that project. And the book that I wrote, Black Queer Work of Ratchet, really inspires that. And it really, um, it really is a culmination, I think, of all of the kind of intersecting ways that my research um, has tended to follow queer culture, pop culture, and uh, Black queer theory, and kind of doing it within a field of linguistic anthropology where it's usually not done. So if you find linguistic anthropologists, they're typically not studying uh, issues of sexuality. They may study issues of race. They even may study issues of gender, but rarely are they interested in those intersections and rarely are they interested in issues of sexuality. So I've kind of found a unique way of kind of combining my interests in all of those things. And I'm really excited for this project and I'm excited for the work of other folks who are also increasingly um, joining the joining the team, so to speak, of, of folks interested in language use and issues of sexuality, race, and gender. Yeah, and that, that was a you know as I was reading the book, and it flowed so easily. I'm like, 
this is so simple to read. Why has this not been written before? It's almost like, you know, when something <laughs> is not at all laboured, it was just like a real <laughs> pleasure to read. So can you tell the audience about the word ratchet? Okay, common, yeah. currency, com common currency in my house, but not maybe in everyone's houses. Yes. Uh, so the word ratchet refers to, you know, I, I, I usually avoid and resist simple definitions of the word. Okay. So off, off the bat, I typically don't like to define it because I think that it usually is a slippery word that has a lot of different meanings. People are saying it, but they're meaning a lot of different things. Now, the way that I defined it in the book tends to relate to a kind of multiple set of meanings that were often operating all at the same time. So on the one hand, people use the word to refer to bad behavior, right? So any form of bad behavior, typically bad behavior associated with Black people, right? That was how they tended to use the word. Now, it also refers to uh, bad behavior that is done purposefully, okay? So bad behavior on purpose. And, and that bad behavior is done on purpose for the specific reason of pointing out the fact that whether or not someone is good or bad, it really makes no difference. Like, it, I can do whatever I want. It is kind of, so it's kind of like this statement of like, I don't care what good or bad means in this instance, I'm going to do what I want to do for myself because I enjoy it and you're going to deal with it, right? So it's that kind of statement. And it also refers to a lack of desire to even regard uh, notions of propriety. And the last way that I like to think about it is as a way of pointing out the boundaries of what is um, what is oftentimes kind of normative ways of thinking about black middle class behavior. So when you say something is ratchet, then you're pointing to the limits, to the boundary around which that is a, around that which is appropriate in a particular context. And that usually refers to kind of these middle class ideologies and the kind of boundary work that it does um, around setting the stage uh, and the context for who and what is deemed socially appropriate at any given time. So um, in the book, you, you, talk, you, you talk about ratchet in the context of the development of American, uh, African-American English. Can you give us an overview of the way that African-American English is, has evolved? Yeah, so African-American English, uh, you know, is, is rooted. And I think and I, I credit here Marcelina Morgan here for my thinking around the way that African-American language ideologies operate. But so I'm really following her work. But part of what she's thinking about and part of how I'm approaching the development of the word ratchet is as this way of bending and twisting standard American English um, for the benefit and the use of African-Americans, right? So African-Americans speak, uh, you know, when we speak English, we tend not to have the same language ideologies, that is ways of thinking about how language is supposed to be used. We don't have the same language ideologies as other people who are speaking the same language as us. 
Now, on the on the one hand, it makes it, you know, it makes it so that we can talk the same language. But I could say something and it means something completely different to a white person than it does to a black person because our language ideologies are different. We don't think about words in the same way. So when I say something is bad, you could be thinking, oh, it's not good. But if a black person overhears me, they could be like, oh, it must be good hmm. because bad can mean uh, a couple different things, right? It can mean bad as in not good, but we also can think of uh, the way that Michael Jackson, for example, used the word bad, who's bad, right? And when he was using bad, he wasn't necessarily only talking about what is uh, not good. He was talking about bad as a way of referencing and indexing something that was cool, something that inflected not just an, an idea around, um, again, these kind of notions of propriety or what was appropriate, but something that was uh, good, um, but kind of informed by what was considered bad. So the word ratchet operates similarly. People can use it and be thinking, oh, you are doing something negative. But it can also be said in a way that reflects on that inherent uh, kind of revolutionary spirit, so to think, of kind of doing good trouble, right? Or making good trouble. And I think that that is ultimately, in a lot of ways, how African-American English operates is this, it, it kind of bends the structure of the language such that um, words don't always mean the same thing. Um, and the way you use words um, can give them various kinds of meaning. Um, and often Black people will reclaim and uh, shift and bend words that were once used to denigrate. Mm. They can be used and switched and reformed and re, uh, kind of recast in ways that um, don't honor those original meanings of what the word is supposed to mean. Black, for example, was once used as a term to denigrate things that were bad or associated with darkness. It is the opposite of light. And then you have Black folks in the 60s and 70s saying Black is beautiful. That is a perfect example of how Black people take a word that is meant to denigrate and twist the meaning evacuating the word of its previous meanings from standard American English and using it to, and to recast themselves and uh, the, the word itself as something completely different. Yeah, and it's not, but it's not just a repossession of, of, of uh, sort of like language, is it? There's, a, there's an invention as well, because I was thinking about bougie. Yeah, that you talk about, you talk about the word bougie, like, if, you know, if you could describe for us in a second what that actually means. But that's a totally new word, isn't it? So you're not just repossessing words, you're bringing new words to the, la to the language. And they're kind of, I think of them as being sort of diasporic words as well, because they're not a combination. They are, you know, they're, they're created within the black community. You know, like twerking. Like I didn't realize that the, the word twerking was like a, you know, it was a, it was, was had come out of New Orleans and it, and it had been dispersed along with the diaspora after Katrina. You know, and so I was, you know, I was I was really fascinated how you explored that. I really liked how you explored that, and it made me realize that you know the changes to the language that 
that the uh, African-Americans were making, they weren't just borrowing and repossessing because I get this feeling with Ratchet. Ratchet's like, that Ratchet's a place you go to, to get away. Yeah, it's like an escapism. It's like all types of things. But, you know, but there's a repossession, not just a repossession, but a sort of, uh, you know, a contribution as well. You're contributing, not just using words of value. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Black folks invent words constantly, right? Ratchet, on the one hand, I mean, arguably, you could say that it it is, uh, you bend and retwist the word wretched to come up yeah. with ratchet, right? You could, and, and a lot, and bougie is the same, like uh, bourgeoisie, right? We don't say bourgeoisie, we say bougie, right? It's a, uh, it's in the in the same way that um and even twerk is to work twerk you know like the words themselves become new words and they get it's not just i take a word and then i make it mean something different it's also this kind of bending of the word and i like the word bending because i like as we think as i think about the word queer and the way that e patrick johnson uses that term queer not queer but the Southern pronunciation of the same word that his grandmother used to refer to the same thing, there's something else that gets added to the word when you bend it, when you reshape it. And I think it's the reshaping and the bending of standard American English that Black folks have done so brilliantly. And in many ways, of course, there's kind of a, uh, there's always the kind of invention of words, but oftentimes those words can feel new even if they aren't necessarily new yeah ratchet is the perfect example i first heard that word when a mother of my church said the word you know when i was in high school and that was you know that was 20 years ago you know what i'm saying and that was the first time i heard the word now when you get when you hear the word later and hurricane chris says it in 2009 you know let's get ratchet let's get ratchet whoa right that's He's not talking about the same thing as my church mother was talking about, like this elder black woman in my church. They're talking about the word, the same word. They're using the same word. And yet it means very different things, right? Or maybe it means the same thing. And either way, uh, they're using the word very differently. And that's what I was interested in in the book, right? Not defining the terms themselves, and the, not necessarily defining ratchet, but thinking about what the word was doing, right? Yeah. It's doing something different for my church mother than it's doing for Hurricane Chris. And they may have the exact same definition of the word, okay? But it's doing different things. And I think that's what is at the heart of the project, not defining it, not trying to capture it and make it mean one thing, but thinking about all of the ways that people use it and use the discourses around it, including the word bougie. Now, the word bougie, in a lot of ways, is uh, somewhat the opposite of ratchet. If ratchet is about, um, on the one hand, calling out bad Black behavior, then um, bougie can also be um, a way of marking, uh, and it's funny, I don't even know if they're opposite as much as they're two sides of the same coin, because in some ways, bougie has often been thrown out as an epithet of black people especially black people who seem to be striving above their station or acting as if they are better than other black people now ratchet assumes a similar kind of thing right you're you're acting outside of what you should be doing so both of them have that same kind of uh potential epithet like that's embedded within them but bougie 
also um, kind of marks a an attempt to uh, act in line with these middle class values and notions of propriety in a way that Ratchet is about bursting out of those same kind of notions of propriety. And then oftentimes what happens with bougie is you can try so much to fit within the notions of middle class, proper like middle class behavior, that what you end up doing is looking ridiculous because it seems put on. It seems a front. It doesn't seem necessarily authentic. And that notion of authenticity also points back to the way that Black working class life is often considered the most authentic form and version of Blackness, right? So it's the Black lower class working class vision of Blackness that that's the version of Blackness that gets counted as the most authentic. So it's really kind of complicated because Ratchet seems to be like what people think Black folks are Whereas bougie seems to be this way that Black folks are trying to push back against what is considered the norm of Black behavior, particularly it being associated with working classness. And but they often are are working kind of uh, they're they're still both work in tandem with each other. And I think that's why it's so interesting when Migo says they're being bad and bougie, right? Like they're in a sense. Uh, acknowledging that oftentimes, even though we we try to make them out to seem like they're so different and separate from each other, they actually end up being very similar yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah, I am, and I'll uh, in the blog that goes with this episode, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of reference a link to Migos's uh, YouTube video around bougie because I think it really articulates really well what it is that you're saying. It demonstrates really well what you're saying. They're, they're both kind of like different like uh, they're just they're both exercising control aren't they these words mm-hmm. you know there's mm-hmm. like sort of control like when you're kind of you know sort of like ingo- indulging in too much blackness that's not positive you know perceived to be positive or when you're straying too far they're very much control it's a very much controlling but what i really liked as well is how you describe the book as an ethnography of a word and I really, really, really love that. So can you tell us a bit more about that, please? Yeah, so ethnography is a practice within, uh, you know, it's a, it's a practice, but it's also a method, right? So it's a sociolinguistic and sociocultural um, anthropological tool that we use and method that we use to understand the contemporary experiences of people. So when we say something is an ethnographic project, Usually what it means is that someone has spent a lot of time in one community, really allowing that community to teach them about the cultural values, the practices, and in the case of someone interested in language like myself, the way that they use words, right? And the way that language comes to matter um, and how it matters in their particular cultural worlds. And so when I think about the book, I often think about it as a as a as a really important exercise in thinking critically um, and deep, thinking deeply with the way that one word can have so much potential to shape the everyday lived experiences of people. I was fascinated by the ways that people would talk about how they didn't go to ratchet places or they didn't like ratchet people, and they would use the word right, to describe 
certain kinds of people or certain kinds of places, and they would talk about how it actually shifted and changed the way that they moved about the world. And I'm like, that is intense. And to me, that gives a lot, that, that's an important thing to sit with and to understand. So I, tra- I follow the word, right? I, I sat with the way that the word moved in the field site. It's like if, uh, you know, we often talk about doing ethnographies of communities, but I wanted to sit with the word and travel it and to see where it went and how far it went, what people did with it. Um, and I, that's why I like to think of the book as an ethnography of, of a word. Um, because when you trap, when you traffic, uh, when, when a particular word traffics in particular ways and it moves throughout a particular context, it's doing different things depending on where it is situated. And if you follow the word amongst a group of uh, users of that word, then a lot of really interesting kind of conversations can emerge, hmm. especially as the ones that I found while I was doing field work. Um, the way people talked about how they moved around in different places, the, the places I would, that I actually ended up in, for example, the strip club, where, which actually is a ratchet place, right? So I think about the way that that word marks the strip club as a certain kind of place. Then I'm then I'm sitting in the strip club and the way that the 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 kind of ethos of the word is animating uh, the particular relations they're in. And then when you look at how ratchet television also has impacts on the way that black lesbians and black queer women are viewed writ large then a lot of really interesting things are going on. So I I followed the word um, and the way that people talked about class politics and ended up with a really interesting kind of story about the way that race, gender, sexuality, and the politics of respectability play out on the ground in real life. Yeah. Among a group of people who nobody ever talks about. Like Black queer women are fascinating people, but we rarely are talking about or dealing with their unique experiences in the world. Yeah, and, and it was, uh, you know, all the time I was reading the book, I kept getting this impre- this this um, this thing going through my mind. For a start, it really reminded me of the way a word in English has been used. I, I come from a, uh, you know, I'm English, but ethnically I'm like all Irish and I belong to a, a culture, we're travelers, basically. So um, there's been a word that we use to, for children called chav, and that word chav has been used to denigrate, to mm. denigrate a, a whole subgenre of like sort of you know sort of working class slash benefit class people, and it's kind of like it's the same way. It's like how we repossess the word. And I remember when I told my mother I was moving to the country, and <clears throat> sorry, I told my ex-husband that I was moving to the country, and he was like, "But it's full of chavs." And my mum was like, "But she's taking the chavs mm. with her." you know and it's, <laughs> it's kind of like it's kind of the same sort of thing I just keep getting this, this image of a ball being flicked to different cultural players and then kicking it around in different ways until mm-hmm. they pass it on to the next person mm-hmm. that is exactly mm-hmm. um and that's exactly what I I, I I saw but you talk at length uh, um about the the politics of respectability being shaped by words and we're mm-hmm. kind of touching on that. So I wonder if you could talk us through how the book talks about that. Yeah, so I follow, you know, Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham's uh, kind of notion of, of the politics of respectability. She wrote this book in 1993 about it. Uh, it's called Righteous Discontent. In the book, she's, she's kind of trying to understand the way that uh, 
African-Americans at the turn of the 20th century were really invested in trying to be seen as American citizens, right? They're, they, uh, you know, the Reconstruction era in the United States is over and they're now ready to become a part of American life, right? And what they are seeing is the way that they are being represented in popular culture as the antithesis of American. And really what American at that point means is white, mm. right? And so they're trying to figure out, and I'm, and I'm now thinking about the way, the way that uh, immigration in the United States marked certain kinds of even European ethnic groups as not white, right? Yeah. And so you're not, like, there are certain groups of white people who weren't even at this time period considered properly white. And so black people are also like, hey, we, we want to be a part of what is included and what you mean when you say American. Now, they were being told that the reason Black folks could not count as American citizens was because they didn't act right, because they didn't look right, because they were out, they were too far away from the norm or what was considered the norm at the time. So what they're trying to do in order to be viewed as respectable subjects is to do the thing, to wear the right clothes, say the right things, worship in the right way, um, become educated, get the same kind of stuff that they see white people doing and achieving and doing those same things, engaging in the creation of art and literature. And in so doing, they hope that this would allow them to enter into the kind of uh, realm of the American citizen. Now, part of what's happening is at the same time, there are a lot of dictates around what it means to be proper, what it means to be middle-class and what it means to be normative. And those things often uh, required the kind of, um, you know, disavowal of one's roots, of who one was, of how you kind of were and where you came from, all of those things. You had to release all of those things to become what white people thought of as the proper or the correct way of being a Black person or the correct way of being an American. And what they, you know, what, what evolves or what kind of surrounds that desire to assimilate into American uh, middle-class life, all of the things surrounding that, including the way that we talk to one another, the way that the upper and middle-class Black people of the time uh, taught those working-class people how to behave or try to teach those uh, working-class or, or uh, under-class, I use that in quotes, to behave, all of those things were really about assimilating. Now, the, what we now know is that Black people have not ever been able to fully assimilate into American society in the ways that other white Europeans were. were. And that is in part because of the, the investment in whiteness as a category. Cheryl Harris talks about the possessive, the, the kind of investment and in the kind of thinking about whiteness as property. That's, not, that's something that most Black people could never get. And I say most because some Black people could pass. Yeah. Therefore, they could get access to whiteness in this way. But Black folks who were, you know, my complexion, kind of a medium brown color or darker, we were not ever going to get access to that same uh, kind of whiteness. And so we were always left out and never really considered 
uh, able to assimilate into um, dominant kind of American culture in the same way. We're always kind of marginal. And the politics of respectability was really an attempt and continues to be an attempt to discipline Black bodies to behave in ways that are assimilationist in spirit and in nature. Stop behaving like a Black person. Behave like a white person, right? And we mean this loosely this because it shifts and changes, but act like them and then they will treat you like they treat each other, which we know isn't true. You can be a respectable Black person walking around minding your own business and still get treated as the Black person you are. They don't care, right? My PhD doesn't save me from the way that I have gotten treated on account of looking the way that I look. Yeah. It hasn't saved me. hasn't saved me yet. And so... Yeah, but also... It doesn't matter if you're respectable, if you behave respectable. Because people still don't necessarily need to, or, 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 you know, white people aren't necessarily going to respect you. Yeah, yeah. But also, as well, what really struck me is the whole time I was thinking about it is this. It's not just that you're prevented from assimilating. You know, even when sort of like black sort of like uh, sort of uh, counter cultures that run parallel um, establish, there's a kind of attack on those cultures. And what I was thinking was like, I went to New Orleans over the space of 14 years. I went twice, once once before Katrina and once afterwards. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. what I'd noticed was this, this kind of change in the African-American appearance because of the way that the government had, had, had uh, just dealt with New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like this massive middle-class black population, like the government had, had, had you know, just left them, left them to like yeah, literally drown. Mm-hmm. you know but what i noticed was in the hair you know whereas before i'd gone there and everyone had looked you know like the black people there had been a very visible middle class appearance when i went back next time you know it's there, there was a much more investment in sort of like the a kind of more black appearance and i'm thinking you know what i would do the same as well if you've if you've not only not allowed me to to join you've you've outcast me and then left me to drown well you know what stuff the suit yeah, <laughs> you're getting you're you're getting yeah. you're getting the true me, and I I was thinking about that because there's so many things like you know because in the book you say um, that Ratchet does things that does a lot of things, and I was thinking about Ratchet sort of like Ratchet not just a word, is it? It's a it's a it's a body shape, it's a hair, it's it's so many things. So mm-hmm. um. Yeah, I wondered if you sort of like wanted to talk to us a little bit about, uh, you know, how, how, what Ratchet actually does and how. Yeah, so one of my, uh, one of, I I think this is uh, an interview I did with Anna in the book. And I love what she talked, I love how she talks about what Ratchet does. She talks about um, the differences. She told me the differences between like a Ratchet party and like a bougie party. And, and, and she talks about what Ratchet does as opposed to what Bougie does. Whereas if you are at a Bougie party for Black queer women, you're more likely to be, it's most likely to be a happy hour. First of all, not a party. It's a happy hour. And at that happy hour, you need to have a, bla- you know, like you have a blazer on. You need to look like you just came from work, right? And, um... You know, in in D.C., the hairstyles are that most women have like kind of natural hairstyles. So you're you're less likely to see um, you're less likely to see processed 
like hair, you're less likely to see women with processed hair in the in in black queer life. But let's just say you you see like well to do, like kind of beautifully manicured locks, or you see really not you know people got their full face of makeup on, and they look like they just came from work. They have their good shoes on, they're in their blazers, they're looking great, they looking sharp, and um, they only buy one cocktail, right? Maybe two. Now, you know, they might drink, you know, like a martini or something, you know, some, some kind of highball or something, like something very nice and classy, right? And they don't spend too much money because they have bills to pay. You know, they've got, um, they've got homes, um, they, they're saving, they're budgeting, right? Um, and they're just, the way that they carry themselves around the party, the, the, the first question someone is going to ask you is, oh, well, what do you do? You know, they're interested in what you do for, for work, right? And they're interested in who you know. So it's a network. It ends up, the happy hour becomes a networking event, right? Where they're telling you about their new business or they're telling you about their side hustle, right? Whatever, right? And that's what the function of that party is. The, the music isn't particularly uh, loud. You can talk, you can chat. And it's all about appearing and appearing middle class. That's what the whole performance is. That's what the the event is about. Now, a ratchet party looks very different because a ratchet party, first of all, you're going to be standing in line for about 45 minutes anyway, off the break. You're not going to just be able to walk in off the street and end up in the happy hour. That's not happening. So you're going to be standing in line for 45 minutes where you pay $15, $20 to get into the party. Now you get into the party and you can't hear, okay? Because you you don't know what's going, the, the, the music is too loud. You can't hear. And it's, obviously going to be the ratchet music of the day. And um, it's going to be hard to get a drink, but you're, but you know what? You're going to be like, it's, it, don't worry about it. Just sit me in VIP. I want bottle service mm-hmm. right now. You don't care about how much the bottle costs. It's going to cost you three or $400. Doesn't matter. Cause you want to look good and you want everybody to know you got money and it's it. And you got money to spend. And so the party itself becomes a performance, not in, um, being subdued or not in uh, trying to tell everybody about the work that you do, but it's about the flashiness of it. And it's about having fun. It isn't necessarily relied on it. Nobody cares what you were wearing that day. Don't nobody care what job you have because nobody's asking you, Ooh, what do you do? They're asking if you want to dance. They're asking if you what what you want to drink. Like you don't care how much money you're spending at that party. You don't care what your hair looks like. You don't care what sneakers you got on. You don't care. Those aren't the things that dictate the space. What dictates the space is how hype you're going to get, how drunk you're going to get that night, if you're going to make it home that night. That's what the party's about. So what Ratchet does is it releases you from the pressures of assimilationist practices. It releases you from the need to act in a particular way that's dictated by other people's desires and ideas about what it means to be a proper middle-class subject. Ratchet does not care about your middle-class subjectivity unless you spend in the money. Like, are you spending it tonight? I don't care how much money you have unless you, unless you spend in it, right? So that's, the ethos of ratchet is about excess. It's about going outside of the limits and the notions of what's proper. It's about doing too much. If if ever I could describe what ratchet does is it's too much. Ratchet does the most, the absolute most. 
And I think that's what people mean when they say that sometimes you just have to get ratchet. Sometimes you have to not care about what other people are saying or doing or how those boxes are restraining you. And that's what ratchet does for a lot of people. Mm. You know, what? it's so funny when I was reading this because like uh, ratchet kind of entered my sphere of like knowledge through my children about six years ago. And they have music. They listen to ratchet music and they will leave it in my car. And there are times (laughs) when, and I have a very, you know, I'm not going to lie. I have a a boy's car. I have a boy racer car because I like, (laughs) like, I like to let off. Yeah. And there'll be times sometimes when, I don't want to be what I look like. I want to go yeah. back to where I come from. So I don't want to be a middle, middle-aged posing as middle-class academic. Yeah. I want to go yeah. back to my traveler roots. I want to drive the car like I've stolen it and I need the yeah. music to do it. Yes. So for me, ratchet is a, an escapism. And uh, what you're describing is ratchet is the here and now. Mm-hmm. It's not aspirational in, in, mm-hmm. in the um, traditional way. It's about sod tomorrow, let's live for today. Mm-hmm. and tomorrow is not guaranteed either no it's not and it and it's it's not guaranteed it's not necessarily the most important and who you are and how you are right now is what's most important how, if you are experiencing joy and happiness and and kind of pleasure right now that's what ratchet is about and if you think about it in western society that is dangerous Right, that ethos of doing and doing what you feel right now, what feels good right now, and uh, kind of um, and it celebrates it, a different type of cultural capital. Yeah, that's what it does. It celebrates a different type of cultural capital that is hard to contain. Mm-hmm. If the cultural capital that you're displaying, like you talk about in a bougie party, is your investment, your mortgage, all the stuff that keeps you tied, well, this is dangerous because what what the cultural capital you're 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 sort of sharing here is your sexiness, it's your it's your hipness, it's your ability to read and mood, it's your ability to kind of draw people to you. It's a different type of cultural capital that that actually is a far rarer a far rarer beast. Anyone can get anyone can get a mortgage, yeah. But it's a different thing to be in the middle of the party and everyone wants to be around you. That is a mm-hmm. totally different type of gift. Mm-hmm. That's a totally different type of capital. Yeah, and you can talk about it. You can definitely talk about it that way. And you can also think about the fact that like anybody can release the can release themselves from the from the chains of like proper middle class behavior, right? Anybody can be like, fuck that. You know, like all of the things we do to keep the things that we say we are supposed to have. Anybody can say, can dispense with those notions that they're supposed to do these things to keep those things and to have these things, right? And it's it's just saying no to the, the, the kind of assimilation. Uh, and for Black middle-class people, the really the requirement that you comport yourself in a particular way in order to get access to places or to things, right? You have to talk a certain way. You can't talk too Black. You can't talk too Southern. You can't talk too anything. You can't be too much. And that's what Ratchet kind of dispenses with. Like, I don't care about what I'm not supposed to do too much of. Ratchet says that you can do too much of it. And then when you go to a Ratchet party, everybody is doing a little bit more 
than themselves like than they than they would be at that at that uh bougie party and and i want to point out here that i you know because i did an ethnographic project i would interview someone and they would tell me oh i don't go to ratchet parties but then i would be at a ratchet party with them Okay, so that so even people who said that they didn't do ratchet parties or go to ratchet places or uh, or oh I don't do those things, even the folks who were supposedly bougie would often find themselves at a ratchet party because regardless of what you say about what you don't do, you too often need to go someplace where you can be too much of something yeah. that is outside of the norm of respectability, right? And I think that's what was so interesting about. Uh, seeing what the word did and how it organized particular places because if i was spending too much or, or if not me because i didn't do bottle service i couldn't afford it but let's say if somebody was doing bottle service somebody else and that's too much and they know damn well they can't afford it then somebody else was wearing heels that were too high and they knew their feet was gonna hurt or if somebody was wearing heels that were too high another person was drinking too much and they knew they couldn't drink that much right it was always everybody's too much looks different yeah and that's yeah. what's important to keep in mind about what ratchet is it's not something that's so easily definable because what too much is for any one person can look different yeah yeah it's it's the place that you end up at the end of the night no with no intention of being there at the start <laughs> of your night there yeah. is a crossover somewhere in the night you know where you know you're going to end up ratchet yeah. yeah, and you and and you also say you go into the night knowing that you know I don't know how this is gonna turn out, but I'm going anyway. Yeah, I'm just and gonna that's take the, the moment, right? <laughs> it's that feeling. It's like I don't know how this is gonna end up, but I'm going anyway. You huh. know, um, and that's but that's it, right? All of us sometimes need to feel that release, and I think that's what's so um, that's what's so interesting about it. And the way that works for Black queer people who are often already considered outside of these notions of propriety, it can be really interesting, right, to see where they end up, so to speak, at the end of the night, and how they end up, um, how they end up kind of thinking about themselves in the world in relationship to these normative prescriptions about what they're supposed to do, how they're supposed to stamp their non-normative subjectivities down in order to fit within what straight people think queer folks do, mm. um, how they behave, what they look like. Um, for example, I'm thinking, yeah, well, I was just going to give an example of a, of one of my informants who, when she was out and about, had wore, you know, wore clothes that were very masculine, um, very masculine of center, kind of attire and aesthetic. But then when she talked about how she what she wore when she went to work, she talked about having to tone it down. Right. You know, and I'm like, oh, that makes you know, like, yeah, I understand what that means. Right. It's a toning down. And that's what's always required of black queer folks. Right. To tone it down because you don't want to freak the straight folks out, because if you really went all the way and did you at work, they wouldn't respect you in the same way. Or at least that was the fear. Yeah, I, I, I've been reading a lot about heterotopia recently, and this is what I kept getting, you know, that, that sort of Foucault notion of heterotopia of a place that everyone knows it's there, but it's a kind of like a sort of outside of like normal, uh, out of the norms. Now, I was just thinking what an important role that, that uh, Ratchet plays, but also as well, how Ratchet is, 
is presented in so many different types of of cultural memes and I mm -hmm. the whole time I was reading this book I just keep thinking about Beyonce yeah Beyonce mm -hmm. promotes Ratchet in a way I mean she's you know like and she to, to an extent she contributes to the the vocabulary as well but what I really got when I was reading this is the sense that that Ratchet kind of like um crept up on you over a period of time like it it, it kept kind of resurfacing you know, kept yeah. interrupting into your consciousness. And I was wondering if you could tell us about the ethnographic moment you experienced at the Black uh, Queer Women's Party. Yeah, um, I had a lot of these moments. The one I shared in the book is about the the one where I ended up in the strip club. And um, and and I I studied Black queer women's scene spaces, right? So this book really comes out of just a single chapter of my dissertation because I was interested in Black queer women in D.C., the places they went, how they, where they hung out. Mm -hmm. And as I'm doing my work, people kept saying ratchet. It was everywhere. The, mu the, the music that people were talking about, it was ratchet. If you described a place, it was ratchet. If you described a person who was working class or, or didn't properly behave right, they were ratchet. It was like, what is happening? I was not interested necessarily in this word or in in it in general. I was just trying to follow the black lesbians, right? I was I was just kind of following them around. And then some it, like you said, it kept creeping up. And by the time I ended up, uh, I was doing field work at one of the uh, at a black uh, at a black strip club that once a month does a black lesbian party or black queer women's party. I end up at the party and I'm, you know, I'm just doing my ethnographic business. I get a drink and I basically sit on a wall and wallflower for the night, right? I might, uh, you know, sometimes people would walk up to me and kind of engage me in conversation or sometimes I would have these moments where, um, where people would like, we would talk and we would end up having these really deep, profound conversations about their, their worlds and about the way um, that their life was kind of shown, you know, how it was happening. It was fascinating being an ethnographer and being in space with people. It was fascinating the kind of ways that people opened up to you when you said you were researching Black lesbians. But in this particular moment, and I think this is the one that I talk about in the book where I talk about being at a party and this song comes on, Chief Keef's I Don't Like comes on. And the song is about um, all of the things that Chief Keefe and other folks in the song don't like. And they particularly don't like folks who are fake. They don't like people who uh, are liars or say something about you behind their back or they snitch, right? They tell the authorities stuff that, you, that you're into or that you're doing um, and who are otherwise just fake or bougie. They don't like these people, right? And so in the song, um, there's a, there's a, um, uh, Kanye West is featured in the song. And in the song, he does this really interesting thing where he, he ends up talking about uh, Black lesbians, right? He talks about, he says, you know, they, well, in, the, in that particular lyric, he's talking about how girls, he says, girls kissing girls because it's hot, right? And he taught and he's and he's talking about this kind of fake kind of um, girl on girl kissing in public kind of thing that happens oftentimes. 
in heterosexual spaces where two women end up kissing each other on the dance floor or something, but they do so as a means of appearing to be more sexually available, Con you know, in a very contradictory kind of way of being more sexually available to men or being more um, uh, kind of like more sexually lascivious or more sexually experimental, right? Yeah. That's their way of showing men that they're into quote different things. And they're not really gay. They're not really lesbians and they may not actually even be bisexual. They're just doing it because it's hot, right? And that's what Kanye is kind of mm. referencing. And then he says, um, girls kissing girls because it's hot, right? But unless they use a strap on, then they're not dyke. So what he's at that point kind of referencing is the fact that unless they're actually having sex with women, right, unless they're actually having sex using a phallus, in this case, a dildo, to penetrate their partner and actually have sex with that person, then they're not actually into each other, right? This kind of like fake kissing is one thing, but actually engaging in sexual practice with a woman because you want to, that's a completely different thing. Now, when you read it, you could be like, or when you listen to it, you could definitely interpret it as like, how dare Kanye West tell black lesbians what they should or should not do? Or how, you know, what it looked like. You can definitely read it in that way. But I can't read it that way because of the moment that I had at the strip club, where when this song came on, every black lesbian queer woman in the room was singing the lyrics. Uh, like were repeating these lyrics as loud as they possibly could. And to the point where the DJ turned Kanye's voice off completely. <laughs> and all you heard were a couple hundred black, lesbian, queer women, even the strippers on the pole stop <laughs> and say, you know, but unless they use a strap on, then they not tight. They ain't about that life. They ain't about that life. We, you know, we hanging out the window. It's about to be a sug night. And like, you're like, oh my God, right? Like this was not about Kanye West and whether or not he thought certain kinds of women were properly lesbian or whatnot had nothing to do with Kanye West. But what he, what he offers in that line and what a lot of hip hop offers is an opportunity for black lesbians, black queer women to see themselves in a way that's really hard to see in these spaces and especially in like a uh, strip club which you could think of as kind of a temple to black uh heterosexual heteropatriarchy right you think of these places as places that aren't about women's pleasure but about men's pleasure and their fantasy worlds and yet here are a bunch of black lesbians who are here for their fantasy or here about their desires and they are rapping these lyrics and they're saying that unless you are actually about this life, about the life of Black lesbianism, about Black queer life, then you're not real. You're fake. You're faking it. And I loved it. I loved that moment. And I loved um, thinking about the way that when you, a lot of times when people approach hip hop, they sometimes do it absent thinking about those particular contexts where other folks might be reading, might be, um, experiencing or reinterpreting hip hop lyrics that don't match up with the way that it might feel or sound when you're riding in your car and listening to it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
you know, so the references that you use to hip hop, like I like hip hop anyway, but I mean, I, mean, I like it because there's a, there's so many levels of it. It's it's yeah. like it's 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 like a music for all times, isn't mm -hmm. it? It's a music it's a music mm -hmm. for driving. It's it's incredibly like well observed a lot of the time, and so Kanye really goes there around lesbians. Like and this is not once or twice he mentioned he's referencing lesbians in the songs. You mm -hmm. know, he, mm -hmm. he's on it. You know. Yeah. Um, so uh, right, okay. So how did you how did you sample your participants? Because obviously this is an ethnography. Yeah, how did you sample them? Um. So you know the the way that you know methodologically the way that I found these women was primarily I, I ended up I was lucky because the project kind of um, got tweeted. I, I you know I made a website where people could email me and sign up. And I tweeted about it and somebody retweeted it and it got retweeted a bunch of times. And so I ended up getting the first batch of respondents from um, people who were in the city who saw the tweet and got in touch with me. I also used uh, uh, kind of a, a snowball sampling effect. So people would tell me like, oh, you should talk to such and such. Now, when it came to the interviews that I conducted with Black queer women who created Scene Space, I just went to the parties and asked them if I could talk to them. Mm -hmm. um, so I was at every party at the beginning. I would be the first one in there. I would end up being able to chat with and talk with the promoters of the people who organized the parties. And then I was able to develop relationships with them that they would sit down later and talk with me about how they created space, how they formulated the, how they came up, like why host a party at the strip club, right? Like I was able to ask them these kinds of questions because I was just there at all of the parties for like four years straight. So they saw me, they knew me, and eventually they got comfortable with sitting and chatting with me. And then they would share that information with other folks. But because I was on the scene for so long, I was able to really sit down and chat with people who I would often see at the parties and clubs, I'd be like, hey, can I, like, would you be up for an interview? And then there were a host of informal kind of conversations that I had with women. The 40 that I mentioned are people who I sat down with and had formal interviews, but there were, I want to say, twice as many informal conversations, if not more, right, uh, informal conversations that I had with women while I was at the party. Um, you know, or while I was at the event. And these are countless. And I was always open and clear about what I was doing. I was a PhD student. I was doing research in Black queer women in D.C. because everybody wants to know what you do. So it was a great way for me, especially at like bougie middle class parties to be like, oh, what do you do? Well, actually, I'm a researcher studying Black queer life and, you know, and Black queer women in D.C. Oh, let me tell you. Right. So it ended up being really um, interesting and a fruitful set of conversations. But, yeah, most of the women that I, I did not know, most of the women found me, which was uh -huh. great. And then there were plenty of people who were snowballed and some folks who um, who I knew, uh, who I was able to chat with, but it was, ended up being really fruitful. And I had a lot of people who, after the interview, they wanted me, they wanted their friend to come and also talk to me. So what that ended up doing was meaning that the sample that I had of formal interviews ended up being primarily middle-class and upper-class women, because those were the folks who, oh, you should talk to my friend. So it was, ended up being all these women who would be considered, quote, bougie. Yeah, ended up making up the majority of my sample. So I talk about that, right? I talk about the way that the sample is in many ways 
skewed because I only talked to middle, I talked primarily rather to middle-class and upwardly mobile women who at, and I say upwardly mobile because they may have come from working class uh, families, but they had attained some, a, a different kind of class status. And so uh, it was interesting that those ended up being the majority of the women that I spoke to, but in a lot of ways that mirrored um, the population of people in Washington, D.C., the majority, you know, it's one of the few cities and metropolitan areas where there is a huge preponderance, like a high preponderance of black middle class people. So the sample that I have uh, ends up mirroring in a lot of ways the way that black middle class life really ends up. Uh, being the kind of primary organizing feature of of Washington DC writ large. And I think it was really important. What I really got from that is that your 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 insider positionality was really important. But and you know I I'm getting to the point where I don't think anyone apart from insiders should do research because it, it's the only way that you can reach populations that you can't access through a gatekeeper. I mean there is no gatekeeper to to sort of like black bougie queer women no you have to you have to know them because they're not letting just anybody in and they're not yeah. gonna sit down and chat with just anybody because it's not safe to do so no you know it's not um so the the folks that i talked to yeah i mean you're not gonna get access to these women unless unless you get kind of an amen from somebody else yeah so i think in a lot of ways my insider position helped me tremendously and it also radically shaped the way that I came to the work and how I analyzed it ultimately. Hmm. And what the impression I got as well, like, I don't know what your thesis question was, but what I got was a seeking of knowledge rather than seeking of an answer. Yeah. Absolutely. As yeah. an ethnographer, we're trained, right, to follow the inform, like follow our informants, follow our subjects and let them dictate to us what our... Uh, what what actually is there, right? Yeah. If you kind of go in, I mean, you go in obviously with a question because we're scientists, but you go in asking a broad question and seeing what happens as a result. I was interested in the socio the socio spatial practice and linguistic practices of Black queer women. What I came out with was this book about the word ratchet. I had no idea when I started this project that class politics would play such an important part in the way that Black queer women in D.C. were organizing their lives. I had no idea. Mm. And so I ended up having to become an expert on class politics because I had no idea that was a thing. I didn't really expect, and, and I'm still to this day flabbergasted, that Black queer women who I think of as already situated outside of the realm of the notions of propriety would be so invested and being considered proper middle-class subjects. I'm like, but nobody thinks of you as proper anyway, so why are you so invested in doing that? That's whack anyway. Why are you so invested in that? But they are because they want to be included. They want a seat at the table. And certain kinds of Black subjects aren't allowed at the table. So they want to be at the table. And what does it mean to want to be at the table? What do you have to give up? What do you have to do? in order to be seen as the kind of black queer person that's included. And yeah. that ended up being really the main thrust of this particular kind of, this particular book. There are certain ways that you have to behave if you wanna be a black middle-class queer subject who gets to have a seat at the table. 
yeah yeah but also it's what you've got to invite you've got to accept what offer whatever offer gets you into the table i.e Kanye you know yeah. so I was thinking about the other places that you talk about um the the spaces that you talk about in terms of the tv program so you talk about is it this uh district heat or distinct heat Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, can you give us like a sort of like overview of that and how you know, and how now like sort of like women were outed in that context? So, um, so I think you're talking about the show District Heat, right? Which is a which is a YouTube show that was um, I actually think it's still running um, by Shinovia McKenzie mm-hmm. uh, in DC. And it's 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 centered on the lives and experiences of black queer women in D.C. Now, it is what I what I think a lot of my informants also described as ratchet TV. It is uh, within the realm of kind of melodrama, like it's a crime drama melodrama. Okay, so it's every episode is doing the most. Um, there are at least one to two sex scenes, pretty explicit sex scenes in every single show and every single episode. And this show features, um, kind of, uh, a mix of, uh, high femme black lesbians and very masculine presenting masculine of center lesbians. And it pretty much focuses on their uh, love lives and the, the, the kind of um, dramatic crime related lives that they live. Now, there was other, there was, there was also another uh, show um, called Sky's the Limit that also centered on the lives of black, lesbian and queer women in DC. And it was a very different show. Sky's the Limit um, was a show that didn't um it was somewhat of a melodrama but it was a show that centered on the life of this young um howard university educated uh young black girl trying to kind of come come to her own like kind of a coming of age story of a young adult who just graduated from college and wanted to be a writer and very different show they're very different show, very different set of politics, I would argue. And um, one, I would argue, is way more bougie and, huh. and one is way more ratchet. And it's really interesting to see how each show kind of frames Black female sexuality, how it frames um, and is situated within broader sets of politics around class. And uh, yeah, they were both really interesting shows, whereas uh but but I, but I often but what I often thought was that sky's the limit w- was more ready and more within the realm of my of kind of my understanding of what would end up on a prime time mm. tele like it was ready it was with a little bit polish that script I would see on HP like on HBO yeah you will never see or I, I cannot imagine seeing uh, district heat in that same way. And it's not because of the quality, but it's because people are not ready to see. And I don't want to say people aren't ready, but I think it's really, it's much harder to make the case that that form of Black lesbian life 
is is one that people are ready to see writ law like that are ready to see kind of outside of the context of black lesbian life. I don't know if people are really interested in seeing those kinds of fantasy or fictiony tales of black lesbians because they imagine us either in a very homonormative way to be just like them and just would, you know, we just went to Howard. Like there's just, that's really it. But we're just like straights. Or they imagine like, um, or they imagine like what is the case for uh, for District Heat? They imagine all of us are like gang gangsters or either high femme or super masculine. They imagine we're one or the other, and neither of which is really true, right? And so I think it's really interesting to see how each show kind of, in some ways, dispenses with notions of uh, of what is kind of normative for for queer subjects, especially in the case of Sky's the Limit, um, but also what's kind of class appropriate for um, kind of this vision of um, Black lesbian life. So I really loved both shows, but both reveal different sets of kind of investments Mm. in representing Black lesbian life. And I I would love to see somebody do a rendition of District Heat on on like on Showtime next to the L word, right? I would think it would be fantastic. But if you place the L word next to District Heat, you would think that all Black lesbians are this way. Yeah. And that's what I think a lot of people fear is that when you see Black people and you see Black lesbians, like, oh, people are going to think all of us are this way. I necessarily think that and I think that it's possible that some people might read it in that way but I also think that folks who do that thing where they say oh black people these black people are going to represent all of us are really buying into that assimilationist racist idea that black people one black person represents all of us they don't it's fine I don't find anything wrong with district heat I think other people would find things wrong with district heat and therefore it doesn't fit the black middle-class notions of propriety of what we think the best version of black lesbianism should be and the way it should be represented in public. But I like District Heat, not because it was, because it wasn't fancy, because it wasn't, uh, because it displayed this kind of fantasy world, because it dealt with sex and it wasn't sanitized for for proper consumption, but because it, it felt, authentic. And I think there's an authenticity that is in some ways um, rooted in the too much, right? You described like getting in your car and wanting to just drive like you did back in the day, right? And some would argue that's probably the most authentic version of yourself or you felt most like yourself in that moment. And that's when you want to return back to. And in some ways, I think there are ways that Ratchet can do that for us and show us the most basic, regular forms of ourselves. And I, I want to see, I want to see something like District Heat on TV because I think that we oftentimes and too often sanitize images of Black queer life so that we, we, we make it seem like the only way you can be Black and queer in public is if you do so as an upright you know, 
middle class bougie subject. That's the only way you're going to get a seat at the table. But I dispense with that because I don't think even those bougie representations of black queer folk are accurate or fully capture who I am or who the people that I interviewed are. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I really got that. The more that I was reading your book, like, I have this fancy that if I got really rich, I'd run away to Airbnb and not come back. Now, I'm going to run away to Ratchet and not come back. <laughs> you actually made me feel like, it made me feel really optimistic that somewhere there are people that are partying and living life to the extreme and just being themselves and being free and unrestricted and not giving not giving a damn and it gave me hope yes (laughs) i was was so pleased to be out there somewhere people are still living life the way it's supposed to be lived um so my final question for you is who did you write this book for it's an awesome book by the way if you you know (laughs) go stop what you're doing now go find the book um i and i mean this with I mean this uh, wholeheartedly. I wrote this for my little one because I want my little one to be able to be ratchet and as bougie as possible at all times, both at the same time. I want everybody to feel like, especially this little one, to feel like unrestricted by dictates Mm -hmm. of what it means to be proper and, and, uh, you know, just a prop, just proper, like, right? Like authenticity lives in you and it's of you and it's what you do. It ain't got nothing to do with what people say, what you're supposed to do. And that's what I want for my little one. And I want the little one to know that, um, you know, so many of us have tampered down who we want to be and who we end up being because of what other people tell us we're supposed to do. Mm. and there's real freedom and living in excess sometimes yeah I love that Uh, and I think it's good for us to just live and be in the moment and I think it's really difficult for especially black folks um to be to just be you know because we are often told that the way we are is not good enough so I want this little one to know that no matter what, they're good enough and they're just fine being how they want to be. And um, yeah, and that's what I wrote it for. And I, yeah, I, I hope that if you end up getting a copy of it, that you send me a, send me a message and let me know how you read it, how you felt when you read it, um, because it was liberating to write it. And I felt like it was a true a statement and testament to the veracity, the aliveness of Black queer folk, especially those folks in D.C. So um, I'm forever grateful to the folks who sat down and talked with me and shared their stories with me. So just one last thing. Can you just tell us who you are and who the book is, uh, what the book's called, sorry? So the book is called The Black Queer Work of Ratchet, Race, Gender, Sexuality, and the Anti-Politics of Respectability. And I am Dr. Nikki Lane. It's edited by, uh, it's, it's um, oh, authored by, not authored. Uh, published, yeah, yeah, published by Palgrave McMillan. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm too excited now, too, too, <laughs> too excited by the whole notion of ratchet. Thank you so much.